Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The War Room, the podcast where we talk to founders and executives of successful companies about their oh shit moments and crises that they've had to work through and how they work through them. Um, and today we're here with uh, Trisha Kothari, uh, CEO of Unit 21. Hey, Trisha. Hey, Ohad. How you doing? Good. Nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Uh, and very excited to hear your story. As we were talking about before we started recording, Unit is Unit 21 is one of the companies that's kind of leading the, the new wave of fraud prevention companies, uh, helping us and specifically me as someone who in the past have said and was wrong uh, that the fraud online fraud problem is a solved problem. You're proving that it's a big market that it is only continuing to grow. Yeah, well, yeah, it seems so counterintuitive that like how is fraud not done? Like how are we not already done with online fraud? And um, I think the truth is that the fraudsters who are um, who are attacking consumers uh, online today are are very entrepreneurial. They're very creative people that are running their operations like entrepreneurs, their businesses. And um, so that lends itself to a constant game of whack-a-mole where the fraudster is trying to do something and then you as a company put up defenses and then there's a constant game of whack-a-mole. So, you know, that's been really a big reason that fraud has increased so much in the last few years. Yeah, yeah, it's a never-ending story. It's very interesting how the different generations come and there's always a handful of companies that are really going to be big. So Unit, when uh, Unit 21, when, when was the company started? Uh, tell us a little bit about the background. Yeah, so we started the company about four and a half years ago. And um, my background is I joined the online lending company, Affirm. Um, mm-hmm. And I was a very early engineer. And then I was a product manager. And uh, my last role was I was leading the product for the identity products at Affirm. And uh, I saw very firsthand what problems we were facing in fraud and the constant need for rapid iteration because these criminals were very agile. And and the company was investing a lot of money into fraud prevention. I think Affirm definitely had one of the best risk teams um, Mm -hmm. in, in FinTech. But it still, that was completely always this feeling that there was not enough resources being poured into it for the risk operations team who needed to iterate very quickly. Yeah. And, um, and for me, that was an impetus of there's something interesting in the space um, that, that what the current approach is to solving it is not being solved. And as I dug more into it, I realized that, you know, as you said, this online fraud, there's a ton of vendors. There's like a lot of different companies in the space, it's not a new problem at all, but they all focused on uh, more traditional banks, brick and mortar banks, where you would go in person and you would open an account. And um, these banks differentiate between themselves primarily by location and a relationship with their customers. You might be friends with your banker, etc. Versus fintechs, they they have absolutely no location because they're all yeah. online. And they have no relationship with the customer. I mean, you can spend, send customer support tickets, but that's about it. And so fintechs have to differentiate by product. And when you differentiate by product, um, 
fraudsters have a much wider surface area to attack you um, and, and to find a way to get money out of you. And, uh, and that's what we saw uh, at a firm. And, and that's led to the idea that, okay, there's something that we should do in this space. Um, so that was the very beginning of Unit 21. Yeah, makes complete sense. And uh, this is fascinating. And personally, as for someone who's worked in fraud prevention, I will resist the urge to ask you more questions about that. We could spend a, a lot of time about that. But, but let's talk about uh, what you're going to tell us about today, kind, kind of an oh shit moment and how you overcame it. So set the stage for us. What are we going to talk about? Yeah, um, you know, one, as I was thinking, I firstly love the theme of this podcast. I feel like there's so many podcasts that talk about how everything went great. And, and that's totally yeah. not the truth of entrepreneurship. The truth of entrepreneurship is you are going from one uh, one peak to another valley to another peak, and it all happens within 24 hours. Um, so I, I love that you're bringing out the truth of entrepreneurship uh, in this podcast. Um, what yeah, I wanted it's to be, and this, it's going to be easy for all of us if we talk a little bit more honestly about it. But yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. Uh, so what I wanted to talk about was um, was with respect to um, the very early days of Unit 21 when we were trying to find our first customer. And uh, we had raised our seed round. We raised $3 million. Uh, my co-founder also had experience in the space. So we both, um, we both came from the space and, um, and you know, we were um, successful to, to be able to raise our seed round. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what, what happened after the seed round was, was really interesting. We would go out to companies and we would say, hey, um, you know, why don't you use Unit 21? And and they all would take the call and then they would say, they would always have some kind of, you know, excuse. And so they'll say, oh, I already have something in place. Or they'll say, ah, yeah, this is a really big problem, but it's not a priority right now. Or I don't have the budget for this. And we were always perplexed at what is going on. Mm -hmm. And so we said, you know, let, let's just continue to try to uh, talk to more companies. And so my calendar would be filled from um, 8 a.m. Uh, PST to 5 p.m. and sometimes beyond for um, Asian customers um, to just try to sell to them. And it would be back to back where I would effectively become a salesperson. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I I'd had no background in sales. I'd never done sales in my life. It was something I was learning for really on the job. Um, and it didn't work. It didn't work for a long time. Um, so we raised our seed round in Thanksgiving of 2018, uh, which is like December-ish uh, of 2018. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then it was five months. Uh, we were really unsuccessful in getting any customer uh, until April, and uh, we did not, we did not really have anything um, at the time. It was almost like we had this prototype that we weren't even being able to get one user. And we we tried everything. We said just use it for free. Do do whatever you have to. And um, and then at so tell us tell us a little bit about kind of how that felt, right? Because that's that's kind of. It's the early days, right? It's super scary. You just raise money. People are looking at you to do something. Uh, you're not a salesperson. 
Uh, you know how to talk about the problem internally in a larger company, but suddenly you're all out there without the brand recognition of a firm and without the, the relationships within the organization, which is exactly the thing that a lot of enterprise and SMB founders uh, run into, right? How are you feeling here? How are you managing your psychology? It was one of the hardest moments of my life because... I felt like I was constantly trying different things and failing. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the truth about a lot of founders is they've been successful to some extent. Uh, you know, they've been good at maybe school or good in their last jobs or whatever it is. And I just never had this moment where for this long period of time, I felt like an absolute failure. And I was like, okay, I, I also kind of felt like a fraudster because I felt like, oh, wow, I raised this $3 million from my investors. And I told them there's so much opportunity. And here I am five months later and no one's willing to buy what we built. Yeah. So that was one of the darkest moments in terms of where we were to an extent where April, I remember at some point in April, my co-founder and I were discussing and we were like, maybe we should return the money back to investors and this is not really working out. And, and um, how, do you, how do you manage through it? Like, what, what, what do you tell yourself? Who do, how do you rely on for support? So I'm very close to my father, who's also an entrepreneur. And I, when this was happening, <clears throat> I called my dad and I said, you know, I think we're going to shut down the company. It's not really working. It's been five months and there's been zero traction, no interest even to, to get super close down. And he said, you know what, just give it till December of this year. And if it doesn't work, then you can shut it down. And um, that really helped me because what was happening was every day I would try something mm -hmm. and then I would feel like, oh, it's not working. But that change in mindset where, okay, I'm going to try till December and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It helped me become more free and, and just try without that emotional stress. And yeah. um, so what you, ended set, up, you set a boundary and, and then you act, you worked within the boundary, you're saying. Exactly. Work within the boundary. And, um, and the biggest thing that helped me was get rid of that daily emotional turmoil of this is not working. Yeah. Because I knew if it's not working by December 31st, we'll give it back. And there was a plan of action. So there was a plan B that was very firm, which made me feel safer to play and, and made me feel more at least mentally um, okay to go out there and, and still try. It's very interesting. Um, I mean, sounds like a great plan, but on the, on the other hand, you would be giving up your dream of having uh, to, to have started a company. Did you kind of put it, compartmentalize, basically put it out of your mind and basically said, now that I have a deadline, I'm just going to work as hard as I can? Yeah, I think uh, it was a little bit of what you said. Because at the deadline, I said, okay, let's just give it. You know, honestly, if we can't get a customer in over a year, then then maybe this is not it. And yeah. um, and that helped me feel just better about it because that, you know, I felt so many emotions. I felt like I was a fraudster and that helped remove that emotion because I felt like, okay, there's this time, there's a story I can tell investors if I have to fold the company. Yeah. So, so you kind of take a little bit of, give yourself a little bit of distance, kind of see 
see the forest or the trees and, and then what happens? How does that, how do you turn it around? How do you get to a point where, you know, 100, I think 120, 130 employees uh, and, and growing and succeeding? Yeah, so what happened was that really liberated me, that idea that I don't, it's okay if I don't have anything today. If I don't have anything until December 31st of 2019, then we fold the company. And um, and so we just went out there. And then what happened was we had a conversation with Coinbase, which we'd already had in those first five months, uh, that resurfaced. And, um, and they wanted to use us for this really niche use case. But we said, you know what, let's just get one person to use us. And then once, and so we finally signed Coinbase in August of 2019. So uh, it had been about nine months uh, since we raised our seed round and we had no customers. Uh, but then once Coinbase joined, um, uh, once Coinbase became a partner, then it became much easier to attract other people. And that's when we realized what was happening was we were selling to these super risk averse people, which is you know, risk operations and compliance operations people who are naturally much more risk averse. So for them to use a tiny startup of two random people who maybe they know of, but you know, they're, they're just feel like, okay, I don't even know this company might go out of business. I don't know what they're doing. They don't have any other customers. They didn't want to be the first ones to take that leap of faith. And um, once that helped, then it really started. Um, once we got Coinbase, then we had a conversation with Intuit. Um, and then Intuit said that they would use us for their QuickBooks payments and payroll product. And then once we got Quick Intuit, then, you know, Intuit is a very um, household name. Like people know TurboTax, QuickBooks. And, um, and then it really started the flywheel. And so things really took off after the Coinbase and Intuit, um, like they, they became our customers. But had Coinbase not been our first customer, I think things would have would have um, really potentially, I would have pulled in the company. And yeah. um, my biggest learning from that was it just, the de Delta was three months. It was April to, to August. And yeah. um in April, I was thinking of folding the company and August, Coinbase signed. And then we got into it shortly after. And then 2020, we grew significantly our revenue. Um, and uh, and then, you know, the company was able, the flywheel started. Yes. Um, but it was three months. So if I had just dropped the towel April, um, then then I feel like we would have never been able to to build this. Yeah, so the breakthrough was always around the corner, and by giving yourself a deadline, you kind of got yourself out of that loop of thinking of of, of doom thinking, right? Of, of catastrophizing, and you were able to focus and and get the result that you wanted. Um, you raised also a very uh, interesting additional point here uh, that I'm wondering what you're thinking about, and that is the credibility of two people. Uh, with a firm and other kind of nice logos on their resume, but not not working there. And I kind of think through, I think back to when I left PayPal in 2010, my coach at the time said, um, people who used to pick up the phone and answer your call would not because you're not from PayPal anymore and people don't care about you. They care about the brand that you work for. And, you know, we had a good relationship that he was able to be so, so frank with me, uh, but he was right. 
And I'm kind of wondering if you have any reflections about that for people who are leaving a larger company in order to start their own thing and suddenly experiencing that kind of loss of credibility because they don't have the brand behind them. Yeah, I think entrepreneurship is truly the great leveling field. Mm-hmm. And um, I I think one of the big reasons is that ultimately, if someone approaches me, I don't care where they worked. I care about what they're building, whether it'll solve my problem, who else is using them. And and it became so clear to me when we were trying to sell because I would initially, when I was trying to sell, I would constantly say, I worked at a firm and I did this, that, and and no one, they were like, okay, cool. You know, now what are you doing now? And mm-hmm. um, and I think that was really important because um, we had one competitor at the time who um, uh, since uh, got acquired who had, um, who, who was started by someone from Facebook Payments and a really big brand name. And I think the brand can certainly help you, um, but it is not going to make or break the business. And, and then the question comes up, okay, if you don't have that, then where is the credibility coming from? And um, ultimately, I think that's why entrepreneurship is very pure in some forms, because if you're solving a genuine customer problem, you will build credibility just by your customer base. Yeah, over, over time, as long as you sell the, to that first one and then the second one and so on, which is exactly what you did. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it is tough. I mean, it's really tough to get the first customer. And especially if you are doing more of enterprise sales where the average contract is in the high tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, millions, it's very difficult um, to even get one person to give you $100,000 for two people and trust some crazy infrastructure need, which can uh, potentially be really harmful if they get this wrong. And so you do need dreamers uh, to take a bet on you. Uh, but you know, one great thing about the world that we live in is that there are enough dreamers in the world. And so it's a little bit of you know a numbers game that you keep keep trying until you get enough of the dreamers. Um, but but I think that's like the you know million dollar question in entrepreneurship is when do you drop the towel and when do you move on? And uh, and there is no good way to come to that answer. If, if you rely on your emotions, which will absolutely um, betray your the reality of the situation. Um, 100%. And, yeah. Okay, so le- leading into that, maybe a, a third and last question about, about your lessons. Um, you said success could be around the corner. It could be a few months from now. Imagine, you know, someone's listening to this. They just started their company nobody's buying right they're three four months in uh they wake up at three in the morning and and uh, and they spend two hours awake thinking about what's going to happen if nobody ever buys my product do i have product market fit does anybody want my product looking back could you maybe maybe you've done this like could you maybe reverse engineer a little bit what it was that kind of what the signs were that you're finding those dreamers that you're finding those people who are going to give you a chance yeah, it, it is really interesting because, you know, when when you think about like, how do you identify the dreamer? The dreamer I found can be, you know, a tiny 
company that's on the edge of technology doing something in AI, crypto, or or their a dreamer can be in a big organization, but has that mentality to to make the shift. But what you want is someone who is a dreamer as well as who has the power to make a decision. Um, ultimately, if you are doing enterprise sales, you need the buy-in from someone who can push things through. And and actually, that's what happened with a lot of the early calls is we had it with a lot of the dreamers because they wanted to see, okay, what are these, what are these guys up to? And let's see what's happening here. But uh, they didn't have the power. They were very junior in their organization to actually make a budgetary decision. Um, so it's very difficult to identify a dreamer. Like maybe you can see from the LinkedIn posts or just generally what, what they talk about, but it's very difficult to methodolic, met, go, go at it. But I think just targeting people who have power, some percentage of them will be dreamers. And, and then it's about just nurturing those dreamer conversations and building a relationship with them uh, that eventually they, they'll take the bet on you. Yeah. Yeah. I keep telling people who ask me about sales, early stage sales and enterprises that you're going to sign the visionaries and the desperate, right? Either the visionaries or the people who are, who are in such trouble that your product may be their Hail Mary, the only thing that's going to rescue them. And the good thing and bad thing in this is that exactly like you've done, are the only ways to bang your head against the wall until the wall breaks. Right, you invest a lot of energy into it until you find those people. Uh, but sometimes there's just no way. Maybe you can reverse engineer it once you've found them, but there's no way to know before you do. And this is exactly what you're telling us. Yeah, it's. I think if it's very difficult, someone finds what is a formula to find exactly who a dreamer is. It is uh, very difficult because they come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah, hundred percent. Cool. So anything else that you want to, to, to tell people you're learning from the, this journey uh, in the context of our podcast today? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the OSHIT moments I have every day. There is, in fact, very, very rarely will I ever come and back home and say, wow, I didn't have an OSHIT moment. Um, yeah. But entrepreneurship is one of the most fulfilling personal experiences to go through. So I wish everyone uh, the best of luck here. Excellent. Trisha, thank you so much. Uh, this was our podcast, The War Room, with Trisha, CEO of Unit 21. I'm Mohat Samet, uh, CEO of TrueML. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, hope to hear you from you and to uh, host you on our future episodes. Have a great day, everyone.